0: If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, and specifically to chapter 17, we're going to be looking this evening at the second portion of Exodus 17. The last time that we were together, we looked at the first portion of Exodus 17 and how Israel received water from the rock at Rephidim. And now this evening we pick up in verse 8 and read down through the end of the chapter. If you would please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Exodus chapter 17 beginning at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, and he called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, we come to you this evening, and we ask, O Lord, that you would teach us from your word, that as we hear of your mighty deeds, Lord, we would be comforted, we would be encouraged, we would see that you are at work for your people, that you never abandon them. But you fight for them. And so we ask this evening that you would bless us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. There is often a problem when we try to come to understand God using our own understanding, knowledge, and skill. We want to be consistent. We want to work out in a way that that we can understand who God is, what he's like, how he acts. And one of the real dangers of this is, is that we take ourselves away from the scriptures. Because the scriptures often give us concepts that appear at first to be contradictory. But they are both commands from God's word. We have here this evening for us, I think, an example that we can take from and live out in our own lives. And that's the example of faith and the activity of the Christian in faith. Some people want to look at the concept of faith and say that faith alone isn't enough. That we need to add things to faith, that we need to do our part because God has done his part. Others look at the concept of faith and say, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. God does everything. We do nothing. You don't have to do anything but sit there and let God act. And the truth of the matter is that the faith that the Lord has given to us is an active faith. That God has empowered us to live out our faith, to trust in him, and because we trust him, to act. And that's, I think, what we see in a picture here this evening with Israel and their battle against Amalek. This evening, I'd like us to see three things from our text. The first thing that we see is Israel's enemy. Israel's enemy comes onto the scene and attacks them. Then the second thing we see is Israel's action, the response of Israel in acting to this attack. And then the third thing we see is Israel's God, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, the God of you, the God of me, acting on behalf of his people. Well, let's begin then by looking at Israel's enemy. And this text reminds us of the great truth that the people of God face external enemies. This is a reality for Israel. Now, this attack comes out of nowhere. There is no buildup. We might have expected this story to begin with an accounting of how Israel is encamped. Maybe even describing their encampment. And then describing Amalek, how they had come to the place where Israel was. And we might have expected the way we see old battles on film. That armies draw themselves up and shout at each other across an open space and then go to battle. But that's not what we see here. It begins very suddenly. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. This attack comes unexpected, it comes as a surprise to Israel. Now, Israel might have been tempted to think that all of their enemies were gone after the Red Sea. God had already won the victory on the Red Sea. The Egyptians were destroyed. Pharaoh and his chariots were washed under the sea. And we could not blame Israel if they thought, now we can finally relax. We finally turned a corner, and now easier times are ahead for us. Are you waiting and expecting for your life to get easier? Are you waiting on God to give you a time of ease and comfort? Perhaps are you feeling deprived because you don't enjoy that right now? That there's still struggle with sin, there's still struggles in your families, in your relationships. You think, God, you've saved me, you brought me to yourself. Is it one of the promises that I can leave behind all of my fears, all of my concerns, all of my difficulties? We could sometimes think that now we are past challenges. But this text shows us that the people of God are constantly faced with enemies. And there is a link to the past. You see, Amalek may come out of nowhere, but Amalek is foretold in the scriptures. Amalek was actually the grandson of Esau, Israel's brother. So Amalek was one, a tribe, who was naturally opposed to Israel. And it's not just that Amalek appears in the past. No, there is a future as well. There is a continued struggle that this battle presages. Because the way of faith is not to be without struggle. The war of faith is actually designed by God. He designs our struggles, our battles, our difficulties in order to mold us more and more into the image of his son. Remember who is leading Israel now out of Egypt. It's God himself. So Israel is in this very spot by God's design. They are exactly where they are supposed to be. And then later, God reminds them in Numbers chapter 1 that there is war ahead of them. He tells Moses to number the people of God because there are battles before them. He tells them later in this book in Exodus 34 that they are going to have to defeat the inhabitants of the land. So you see, God is warning Israel... And telling us by types that there still are battles to be fought. There still are difficulties to be faced. And Amalek is one of the great difficulties that Israel will face. As a matter of fact, Amalek was actually one of the reasons why Israel did not enter the Promised Land. Most of us know the story of Joshua and Caleb and the 12 spies, how they went into the promised land and they saw all the richness that God had prepared for them. And we remember the part about them saying, they're giants in the land. We don't want to go and see the giants. But there's another part in Numbers 13 as well. One of the other reasons they say, we don't want to go there is because they say Amalek is there. We don't want to fight them again. They're a difficult adversary. We don't want to go through that challenging time again. And so I think one of the things that we must take from this is that the victorious Christian life that we are called to live is not without struggle. When someone tells you, if you have faith, if you want to live the Christian life, you should have a life of ease. Everything should be at your feet. You should have no problems at all. They don't know their Bibles. Because we see right here, God preparing struggles for his people. Just like he does for you and me. We see this throughout the ages of the church. In the early church, there was persecution of Christians by both the Roman state And by others in society. Perhaps one of the most famous examples of this was of the French Huguenot. Those followers of the doctrine of the Reformation in France. Who were attacked and wiped out in a single day. We can think of the church today. In foreign lands all around the globe. Our brothers and sisters are being sold into slavery. Killed. Persecuted. Destroyed. We even are starting to see signs of this here today in our land. As laws are passed targeting Christians and churches. Restricting the way that worship can be done. The enemy is ever on the attack. and We must be aware of this. Because the attack here by Amalek is devious. Now, we saw that it was sudden. But remember the context Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, what's Israel doing at Rephidim? It's pretty simple. They're sitting around and drinking. They're pretty much doing nothing. They're not out on the war path. They're not challenging anyone in the land. They're simply taking a rest and taking in the refreshing water that God has provided for them. And this attack was not a frontal attack. Again, we think of armies drawn up with spears and swords and shouting at one another and clashing shields and attacking. But that's not what Amalek did. We know this because this attack is described in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Moses tells Israel, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. And cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. What Amalek did was he attacked the weakest, the frailest, the oldest of the Israelites. He didn't attack Israel at the front. This was no frontal assault. This was a sniping organization. It was an attack on the rear guard, on those who were weak and sickly. Brothers and sisters that is how satan attacks he does not come at you with a frontal assault no he attacks you at points of weakness not of strength have you ever wondered why times in your marriage are most challenging when you're tired when money is tight when you're hungry when you're weary Because Satan uses our weakness as opportunities to make his attack. Be assured, Satan does not fight fair. He wants to use every advantage that he can gain to come against you. This attack is devious. And this attack is also discouraging. Now, think about the context for this attack. There, Israel is just coming off the discouragement of Marah and of the manna and of Rephidim. They have gone through a period of internal strife, of bickering amongst themselves, of accusing Moses, of accusing God. Israel is not at their strongest. They are bickering internally. And Satan sees this. And he sends Amalek on the attack. And this is the story of the modern church. You see, Satan uses our divisions. He uses our weaknesses to attack us. He wants us to be at each other's throats. Satan likes nothing more than for the people of God's church to be arguing with one another, to be attacking one another. And he will use anything that he can to that end. Would you have thought 10 years ago, if I would have told you, That perhaps the most dangerous thing to the unity of the church would be pieces of cloth. That I was true. Of course not. It seems so simple. And yet, that is the case all across the land. You see, Satan uses every opportunity he can to attack the church when it's divided. And as a result, Israel is not prepared for this attack. They are an untrained group. This is not an army. They don't have crack troops. They are a ragtag group of ex-slaves. Amalek is a tribe of warriors. This is Israel's enemy. Well, the next thing that we see is Israel's action. And what this describes for us is that faith in God requires action. We see in verse 9: So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Now notice Moses' first action here. He says, Choose out men and go out and fight. Now notice what Joshua responds in verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. What we have here is Joshua's immediate obedience. Now this is one of the first opportunities in which we come face to face with Joshua. So when we meet Joshua here, he is not the leader of the Israelites driving out the Canaanites. He is not the one crossing the Jordan, surrounding Jericho. He's just... Joshua, we don't even know much about him. But our first impression of Joshua is obedience. You know, there's an old saying that says, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And that's what God does with us here with Joshua. Joshua certainly would have remembered the Red Sea and how God swallowed up the Egyptians and defeated them. And Joshua certainly was a man of faith. He could have looked at Moses and said, Moses, why do we need to go out and fight? I'm sure God will send a typhoon or a lightning strike or locusts or something. Don't we want to trust God? Don't we want God to get the victory? But that's not how Joshua responds. Because you see, Moses and Joshua acting is not a contradiction to their dependence on God it's not as if they think God is absent and they now have to pick up the slack. No, what they understand is, is that faith in the Lord empowers us to act. It gives us confidence in our actions because we know that the Lord is on our side and we know that the Lord uses means to bring about his victory. Now, this kind of active faith is very difficult. Because there is a challenge when we have to take upon ourselves the activities of faith. And we see it in a picture here with Moses. Don't lose sight of the fact that while Joshua is out fighting, that Moses is on the mountain holding up his hands. And that both of them have a challenge, a difficulty. They are straining to try to bring about this victory. Now, we might ask ourselves, why doesn't God just win this himself? Why does he have Moses lift up his hands? Obviously, Moses isn't capable of bringing about the victory. Because as we see from the text, Moses can't even handle keeping his hands up all day, let alone defeating the enemy. Now, as a brief aside... We see here encouragement within the church that we need each other. Here you have Moses, the prophet of God, the one who stood up to Pharaoh, the one who holds the staff of God, who brought Israel up out of Egypt, and he needs Aaron and her on his sides to lift up his arms. Let you and I never think that we can do without our brothers and sisters in the church. That we are somehow capable beloved, that's true of all of us, even your pastor. You see, this is a proof text, I think, for ruling elders and deacons, because your pastor can't hold up his arms all day long for the whole congregation. Your pastor can't meet every need, can't make every visit, can't do every encouragement, He needs leaders around him to lift up his arms, to be involved in the ministry of the church. And it goes beyond the leadership. Where would our church be if we did not have godly women teaching the scriptures to other women? Where would our church be if we did not have people volunteering to teach our covenant children so that they would grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? This is a reminder that we need each other. Because the struggle is real. And the struggle is difficult. So, why doesn't God just win this battle himself? I think I have to answer we don't know, because God certainly could. But one thing that we do know from this is that God wants to keep the focus on God, not on Joshua and the sword, not on Moses and the staff, but on God himself. Moses becomes weary. But God doesn't grow weary. And so an active faith not only takes action, but it looks to the Lord because victory is not to be won apart from the Lord. We should not see our text describing some sort of magic hocus-pocus to us. What the text tells us is that mighty Joshua and the men who fought could not prevail on their own. Do you see that? Whenever Moses' hands... Drop down. Israel did not prevail. Amalek prevailed. That's a reminder to us that unless God was at work, Israel was doomed to failure. Israel had to fight, but it could only fight in the strength of the Lord. The focus of the battle is not on what Israel does, but on what God does. And so in that sense, this is just like the Red Sea. God is in control. Now, lest we miss this, look at the very end of our passage. Moses prepares a memorial. And the memorial is the great memorial of Joshua and the sword and the hands of Moses. Right? No. Who is the memorial to? The memorial is to the Lord. Not Joshua. Not Moses. Not Aaron. Not her. Not anyone else. The memorial is to Israel's God. And this reminds us of our third thing, that Israel has a God who is the source of her victory. We see this from some indicators in the text. Look with me at verse 9. Moses says to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, this is another example of why we speak of the Bible as being verbally, plenarily inspired. Now, that's a mouthful of theological speak that means not just the big thoughts and ideas of the Bible are inspired, but every very word of the Bible is inspired. And every word in the Bible is there for a reason. Take, for example, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Moses says to Joshua, tomorrow I will stand on the top of a hill. Does this word tomorrow sound familiar? It should. We've seen it over and over again in this book of Exodus. We saw it in chapter 8, verse 23. In chapter 8, verse 29. In chapter 9, verse 5. In chapter 9, verse 18. And in chapter 10, verse 4. And if you don't have time to look all of these references up, you will notice... That it is God declaring what He will do tomorrow to Pharaoh with the plagues. Tomorrow I will show my power. Tomorrow I will show Pharaoh who is indeed God. So what Moses is declaring here is the power of God. It's a it's a highlight for us. It's a marker, an indicator that God is going to be at work. And we see this also in what. Moses says he will go up to the top of the hill with, he will go with the staff of God. The staff of God we are first introduced to in chapter 4, verse 20, and it is how God inflicted defeat on Israel's enemies. It was the marker of God's power through the ministry of Moses. So even when Moses is calling Joshua to go to battle, even when he is holding up the staff of God, he is pointing us back to the Lord. Now, there is also, I think, for us a redemptive significance in this battle. God gives us this story for a reason. These battles are protracted. Look at the end of verse 16. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, when we first read that here, we wonder what's being said. We think Israel fights Amalek, Israel beats Amalek. Well, that's the end of the story, right? Amalek is is gone. They're, They're off to the side. But that's not true. We see that Amalek later fights Israel. We see that Amalek even fights Israel after they are settled in the land. Do you recall the story of King Saul and how King Saul battled a tribe and how contrary to God's command, he did not give over all of the prize, all of the booty to God. He kept it for himself. And that famous encounter with the prophet Samuel, when Samuel says to Saul, God wants obedience more than sacrifice. Who Saul fought was Amalek. He let the king of Amalek live. So David had to fight Amalek again, and we read of this in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and we think, well now surely King David, the type of the Messiah, the great king of Israel, he has wiped out Amalek. Now finally we can relax. Relax. Except for there's this other very interesting story in the book of Esther. You remember the book of Esther and how Esther and the Jews came under attack after attack after attack by someone in the kingdom. That someone's name was Haman. But that was not the only way he's described. He's Haman the Agagite. He is Haman a descendant of the king of Amalek, Agak. Israel comes under attack even after they are in exile from Amalek. Now, what we see here is the initial victory of Israel over Amalek. But what it points to is the ultimate annihilation of the enemies of God. We see this In verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. What God gives here is an assurance of victory. And He wants us to be sure we notice this. Do you see the way He says it? Write it down. And then there's a very interesting turn of phrase. He says that you are to... Put it, recite it in the ears of Joshua. And the verb here actually means to put it in the ears of Joshua. To pound it in the ears of Joshua. To make sure he doesn't forget. Because this will seem like a constant struggle. We've been through this just a moment ago Saul and David and Esther. But what God is telling us is he will win. Do you live your life focused on the circumstances around you? Or do you lift your eyes from your circumstances to the Lord? Does the Bible fix your vision of the challenges around you? Do you see the ultimate victory of God? And does that give you hope and confidence? You see, God desires that we remember his battle on our behalf. And that is why the Lord is a banner for his people. He is the rallying point. Have you ever watched a film of an old Civil War battle? And if you're anything like me, you wonder why there's always one man carrying the flag running toward the enemy. And I always wondered, why doesn't he have a rifle? Doesn't he know people are going to shoot at him and a flag really doesn't do any good? And then you see the flag bearer get shot and someone else drops their rifle and picks up the flag. And you think, well, that's even dumber. You just saw the guy get shot and now you're picking up the flag. But then as you watch the battle go out, you see that the flag bearer does far more damage to the enemy than a man with a rifle because everyone rallies to him. He leads the way. He encourages the army. He shows them that victory is within their grasp. And the Lord is that for His people. He is a banner we look to. He's not a flag. He's God. The psalmist understood this. For he wrote in Psalm 60 verse 4, You have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. The banner of God is displayed that we might see the truth of God. And the prophet of Isaiah describes our Lord Jesus Christ in these ways. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner for the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. King Jesus is our banner. He is the one who leads us to victory. Never doubt that. No matter what is happening in the world, King Jesus will have his people. They will seek him out. He is a banner that they will flock to. A banner is a tangible reminder of the victory that is ours. And so God has successive generations in mind. He has you and me in mind when this memorial is established The Lord is my banner. That's because just as it was in Israel's day, in our day, God treats an attack on his people as an attack on himself. Amalek is trying to get in the way of God's redemptive purposes. And so final victory will be the Lord's. He will achieve it through his people. So finally, in conclusion, I'd like to leave you with three thoughts from our text. First, I want you to resist the temptation to fall to one of two extremes. Either the extreme of complete inaction or the extreme of self-reliance. We are called to act in faith, looking to the Lord. Second... I want you to trust the Lord today. The Lord is able to bear you up today, to carry you through the battles of life, to show you his victory and encourage you. And that leads us finally to this, trust the Lord to the end. If we trust the Lord today, We trust him to the end. We trust him with our eternal souls. We trust him with the fate of the church. We trust that he will win the ultimate victory because he is the Lord, our banner. Let's pray.